What the F is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks to our Patreon members, patreon.com slash whattheif. Go there now and find out how you can become a member and get all kinds of cool rewards. And thank you for supporting our mission for science education and science fun. Welcome to What the If. You know, I went, I must have had too much coffee this morning. I went faster. I fell out of sync with the music. Or did the music Apolo- fall out of sync with you? No, no, no. I'll never, I won't blame those guys. I apologies to the drummer. It was my, my bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome to What the If, the show where anything can happen uh, and usually doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> well, in the sense that we've never successfully destroyed the universe, yeah. That's true. That's true. In the end, uh, what is it called? Uh, decoherence wins the day. The strange quantum oh, well, effects yeah. don't happen. Yeah. Um, At our macro level, anyway. But before I go too far afield, um, um, we have an exciting show ripped from the headlines. Uh, coming up, as we've been doing more and more, I kind of this is a, a little bit of a new thing. Finding our if in the uh, headlines of the day it's always fun. So we do we doing that in a second. Um, uh, right now, that uh, I'm Philip Shane, a documentary filmmaker. I've forgotten to introduce myself for about a year and a half. So for those of you who are wondering, <laughs> what the I know who the other two people are. Uh, documentary filmmaker. Fan of science, lapsed, lapsed scientist, scientist very, very brief, briefly in my youth, and then I realized uh, you had to actually, uh, you had to actually do better in the math class than I was doing, and I was like, "This is not for me. I'm out. I'm out." Um, uh, the uh, first voice you have heard so far is uh, Professor Matthew Stanley of New York. University historian of science. How are you? So were you? Were you, you were good at math, right? Because you, you were actually you were a physicist for a while. I was acceptable at math. Um, yeah. I think I took nine semesters of math, start to finish. Mm. Um, so much math, which was a lot of math, <laughs> as it turns out. Um, I was never super good at it, but I was I was adequate. That's pretty cool. I remember I had a, a friend uh, who may be listening, so shout out to uh, my friend Lewis from high school and uh, college. And I remember he, even in high school, uh, I would see him, you know, we'd walk around, we, we'd each have books, you know, I had some science fiction novel in my backpack, uh, other people may have had comic books. Lewis always had math books, books full of equations. That was just his pleasure yeah. reading. I believe he's a computer scientist now. Um, that other voice you hear... Uh, in the not too distance, not too far distance, is uh, Gabby Panicia, virologist at Rockefeller University. And uh, how are things? How you you must also have been good good at math because you're still in it. You're still in it. I you know so that's the thing, right? Like comfortably, the amount of math I have to do is so little, and yeah. I'm also usually so bad at it. Like the amount of times I've messed up stuffs because I've like just bunked a dilution calculation is uh, <laughs> getting, it's getting to be less often, but it it's not infrequent. Um, what's weird is I, uh, I'm terrible at any kind of normal mental math. I was great at calculus. Uh, like once well, you took the numbers out, I was somehow pretty okay with that. But the instant like I actually had to like add things, I was like, Wow, Can I use my fingers yeah. and toes? That's true of most mathematicians, though. Like, there's nothing worse yeah. than trying to, like, split a bill with a table full of mathematicians at a restaurant. That's a total disaster. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Well, at least yeah, they it's call a universal, universal well, just, sentiment. Yeah, totally. That's right. That's right. They call that arithmetic, right? That's the boring addition. And that's right. That doesn't really fixing. count as math. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so getting to our if, uh, or before I do, Gabby, could you explain to... Uh, Perhaps some people accidentally uh, wandered into the wrong theater and are wondering, what is this bizarre program they're uh, watching? What, what goes on here? Yeah. What are these people doing? Yeah. So at What the If, what essentially we're doing are thought experiments. 
So we pick one thing that we're going to change about the universe, our, you know, what if situation. And then we try to follow those ramifications as far as we can go. Um, so sometimes that leads to all known laws of the universe completely breaking down or life as we know it being completely uh, different. Or sometimes it's smaller things that, you know, we just never would have realized. Um, so generally enjoyable. Sometimes we break everything. Uh, but, you know, don't worry. We put it all back together by the end of the show. That's right. That's reassuring. In the tradition of all the great sitcoms. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, a totally random question, but a genuine question that comes to mind, Matt, is I realized that thought experiment, for me, uh, the first time I heard it about thought experiment, the term thought experiment, was uh, while learning about Einstein, who we mm -hmm. may learn about today, actually. A little uh, bit it's more conceivable. In our, in our yeah. if, coming up in a minute. Yeah. But uh, did he... He didn't come up with that term, thought experiment, did he? It seems like it would be older than him. Uh, no, he did not. It was a well-established idea going back uh, a long time. Um, but he was particularly good at them. Ah. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd say he was particularly deft at, at using them. Uh, uh, uh. Um, so our, our if this week... Um, uh, as I mentioned, may, contains Einstein and, and, and other characters, and we may be imagining future Einsteins, um, comes to us, uh, as it often does, from uh, the New York Times. I'm a big fan of the New York Times science section. And uh, it was an article, a very recent article, um, uh, by William J. Broad, who was one of the titans of science journalism, uh, over there at the Times, along with Dennis Overby and some other fine folks. Um, and uh, he wrote an article, this was from January 17th, just a few weeks ago, and uh, with the headline, What Happened to All of Science's Big Breakthroughs? Where'd they go? No more breakthroughs. Uh, a new study, this is a quote here, a new study finds a steady drop since 1945 in disruptive feats as a share of the world's Booming enterprise in scientific and technological advancement. So, uh, essentially, the thought is: is uh, are we running out of breakthroughs? You know, people are familiar with Einstein. You may or may not know Einstein is famous because he had a breakthrough. He actually had quite a few. I had a bunch of breakthroughs. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, better a breakthrough than a breakdown. You know. Uh, there, <laughs> there might have been a few of those sprinkled in. Maybe, yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. If you're going to go into science, you can have a breakdown or a breakthrough. Choose your, choose your path, or both. <laughs> mm -hmm. You might actually. The really good ones are the ones who, who uh, rally from their breakdowns and keep going until the breakthrough. There'll be many breakdowns along the way to the breakthrough. But um, I'm just going to read a little bit of it here, and then Matt, you can help us sort of set the context, and then we will welcome the if into our presence uh, to begin, in ceremonial fashion, to begin the thought experiment. So here, I'm just going to read a, just a little bit here from uh, William J. Broad's uh, article, What Happened to All of Science's Big um, Breakthroughs. And uh, it says, uh, begins by saying, miracle vaccines, video phones in our pockets, reusable rockets, our technological bounty and its related blur of scientific progress seemed undeniable and unsurpassed. Yet, analysts now report that the overall pace of real breakthroughs has fallen dramatically over the past almost three quarters of a century. So the past uh, 75 years. This month in the journal Nature, the report's researchers told how their study of millions of scientific papers, that's impressive, to study millions of scientific papers and patents, shows that investigators and inventors have made relatively few breakthroughs and innovations compared with the world's growing mountain of science and technology research. The three analysts found a steady drop from 1945 through 2010 in disruptive finds as a share of the booming venture, suggesting that scientists today are more likely to push ahead incrementally than to make intellectual leaps. I'll just hit, wrap up here. We uh, quote, we should be in a golden age of new discoveries and innovations, quote, said Michael Park, an author of the paper and a doctoral candidate in entrepreneurship and strategic management at the University of Minnesota. 
Uh-huh. So now we know why the Chinese balloon is hovering over Minnesota. Oh, no, no, it's hovering over Montana, not Minnesota. <laughs> Montana. So I, get that I think it's headed, yeah. it's headed to Minnesota. Um, so I, I, so <laughs> there's my answer. The reason is uh, Chinese balloons. If you've heard about that in the news, maybe it's stopping our scientific breakthroughs. But, uh, but this is an interesting thing, and, I, and I've, I've heard people talk about this. So um, Matt, just give us a sense. For, some, some people may already even be lost by this sense of what, what, do you, what slowing down breakthroughs, what does that mean? I feel like I hear scientific news all the time. Yeah, so this is, um, uh, there's a lot going on here, I guess. Um, yeah. Because we, you know, we expect science to be something that progresses, that is, that gets better, you know, new ideas and new methods and, and ways of thinking about things. Um, right. And there's a, a sense that um, you can have a breakthrough in the sense of a really dramatic change in ideas, um, or you can have incremental changes, so a little bit. All right. So if we think about this in terms of technology, um, the, uh, um, you know, phones, so on our old landlines, um, going from the old dial phones to push button phones was probably an incremental change, right? It was nice. Mm. It was it was a little faster. It was a little easier. But nobody's yeah. life dramatically changed. The, the way you use the phone did not dramatically change because of push-button phones. Yeah. Um, whereas the cell phone was a breakthrough in the sense of it being a dramatic change, right? The way you used a phone was a totally different thing after the invention of cell phones. Um, so, so the question here is... Um, should we be expecting lots of the breakthroughs um, or should we be expecting lots of incremental changes? Uh, and this paper is trying to quantify um, how many of these breakthroughs we're getting and compare that to the past. Right. And, um, and yet, uh, even the fact, the idea of frequent breakthroughs, it seems a little odd to me. And when I think of breakthroughs, and again, it could be because of my poor knowledge of the history of science, because I haven't sat in enough Matthew Stanley classes. Um, but uh, I think of Isaac Newton, uh, Galileo, Isaac Newton, Einstein, uh, I don't know, et cetera, <laughs> a few others. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if Stephen Hawking counts as having a breakthrough. But um, these are very far apart, it seems to me. Hundred years apart, each or something. Um, yeah. So that's um, <clears throat> so. If you ask people to to point to breakthroughs in science, they'll do stuff like that, right? They'll say, "Well, it's yeah. what Einstein did, or it's what Darwin did." Um, uh, the idea being that there, these are the people that set a new way of thinking about stuff, um, and that's actually the metric that this paper uses. Is they they look for the citations. Um, to see when everybody starts citing one new paper instead of the old stuff, um, which is an right. interesting way to, to to look at that, right? right. Um, but there actually aren't uh, like there aren't that many Einsteins and Darwins out there. So if that's the level of breakthrough you want, then yeah, you're not going to get very many of those. That's just not <laughs> that's just right. not a thing. Um, but by the standard of just when do people start citing the new paper, that's a more modest um, standard. So you could expect that to be to be happening more often. Um, and the the shadow lurking over all of this is a guy named Thomas Kuhn. Um, that's K U H N, who writes a book back in the '60s called "The Structure of Scientific Revolutions," in which he coins the term, well, adopts the term uh, paradigm. Um, which is now totally ubiquitous in the way people think about stuff, but he meant something pretty specific by it. And he said that the reason science works well is that uh, they have scientists have a shared paradigm, by which he meant uh, a shared set of agreed-upon rules and expectations and values and foundations. Uh, and he says the reason scientists get a lot done is that because they share all of those things, they can, uh, everybody can agree how to build on those instead of having to argue about the fundamentals every time. So he says most of science is that. Um, he says his metaphor is the crossword puzzle. Uh, he says, you know, when you get a crossword puzzle, there's lots of unknowns. There's interesting things to try to find, but it's also really clear how to go about solving the puzzle. 
right? You know how many letters right. the word is, you have a clue to it, you know how it intersects with something else. So he says right. most science is like that. You've got a, a, a clear structure of what to do. But then every now and then, uh, he says, um, a new paradigm shows up and people shift from one paradigm to the next. And that's what he calls a revolution. So he says what's, what's extraordinary about people like Newton and Darwin and Einstein is that they give a whole new paradigm for how to do science. Mm -hmm. So what this uh, new paper is talking about is really um, Kuhn's idea of paradigm shifts. Um, so this paper is asking, why aren't we having more paradigm shifts today? Mm, interesting. And you had a, a fanciful idea for an if. In other words, there's, mm -hmm. there's two ways we could go about this. One, and this is how, how the if is born and the process, the scientific process, very scientific process of, uh, of us coming up with our show topics. And that is, uh, we could imagine the, the no more breakthroughs ever. What if breakthroughs completely stopped? Uh, and or or what if breakthroughs speeded up? Yeah, I I, I love that idea. I love that idea. So um, so our if and we have to learn how to just like constructing a spell. Uh, <laughs> we have to we have to come up with the, the proper wording. So what what would be the wording for the if? How would you say what? You say what the if? Uh, the wording I think is something like um, uh, what the if we were having constant breakthroughs. Yes, what the if? The scientific revolution never stopped and kept speeding up and speeding up and speeding up. And what if we were having constant breakthroughs? Now, hopefully that's not a medical condition you're enduring. I don't think you would want that. <laughs> I think it's a breakout. Yeah. Breakout. <laughs> constant breakthroughs. Constant breakthroughs. Yeah, because so, I think that's that's I think that's implied in the paper, actually, is that they want more breakthroughs, right? Because if you say something yeah. like, why aren't there more? That means you want there to be more. Um, yeah. So we're we're fulfilling the vision of the authors here that it would be a good world if um, we are having constant breakthroughs. Right. So should we, uh, as we proceed here, as we extrapolate, the, as we do this thought experiment, um, do you imagine, do you want to imagine the breakthroughs beginning at some rate and then increasing, or do you want to jump to a particular rate? Like what would be um, a good yeah, rate? We can increase speed, but I think we just need a lot and frequent, right? Right. So what um, would be good? What would make the scientists happy? Well, the, well, what makes a scientist happy is another question entirely. Um, but let's uh, <laughs> uh, let's have daily breakthroughs. Daily breakthroughs, I love it. Gabby, yeah. you you can you imagine daily breakthroughs in uh, virology? Well, I mean, not not on the level of like complete paradigm shifts, but I did kind of live through that with you know huh. SARS two emerging, and I could not mm. keep up with all of the literature. Uh, so with uh, daily. Uh, the entire way we were thinking about science was changing, I would probably be stuck spending most of my time just trying to read what happened the day before. I mean, or, right. or maybe, you know, if it's mm -hmm. if it's every day, it doesn't necessarily always have to be my field. Like maybe like Tuesdays right. is geology that we really like yeah. totally change everything. Like Wednesdays is physics and then by like Thursday, then they get to biology and then I have yeah, to care. So yeah. maybe that's a little bit more sustainable. Um, but if it really was every day, I think... I think I'd have to quit. I couldn't keep up with reading papers <laughs> that much. All right. So, so you said that you feel like you've already um, been through a breakthrough with with COVID. Um, what's that like? Like, what is what does it look like from your point of view as a researcher to have breakthroughs happening? Yeah. So, I mean, on one hand, like it's understandable why it wasn't a breakthrough because for as much as all of this stuff was completely new and everybody, there was a flurry of excitement and trying to understand it and viewpoints were kind of shifting all the time. Mm -hmm. We still kind of already had some foundational rules from the way we were thinking about stuff before that still applied. Okay. We still knew is, it was a virus. Is, we, uh, oh, let's just describe, yeah, for, for those who are, are not uh, up with it. So, so what exactly, what, give us just a little, paint a little picture here of what you're talking about, what, what was going on. This experience, yeah, what's so, the, what I the mean, experience of it? Yeah. When SARS-2 was emerging, it was something that we'd heard about. And, you know, much like I think a lot of people, you started hearing about it 
in the news, but the virologists were more focused a little bit on when people started turning their eyes to studying it. A lot, there were some studies before it really exploded everywhere at once around like late February, March. Um, but so then SARS a lot COVID. of research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. SARS-2 is the uh, virus, COVID-19 is the disease. Um, mm, mm, mm. And essentially, what one of the things that was sort of happening is that there were some things that we could agree upon pretty quickly that were a pretty quick consensus. Um, but there were some sort of hand-wavy things about like, well, how does it affect people? How much, like how dangerous is it? How fast is it spreading? How is it spreading? These questions were harder to answer. And so there was a lot of kind of waffling and hand-waving over what it was. Um, and then somebody would, people would put out a paper, suspect like a bunch of papers suspecting something. And then maybe, you know, a month later, somebody else had a different paper and it was like, no, actually, all of that doesn't seem to be the case. It actually seems to be kind of like that, but more like this. Um, so it was just one of these things where every single day, so much information was coming out. And some of it was slightly contradictory. A lot of it was just furthering everything. Mm -hmm. And because a lot of it wasn't being peer-reviewed in the same way, it wasn't being looked over by other scientists, you really had to read each paper to sort of judge for yourself more how much you could trust that mm -hmm. data. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so there was a lot of, it wasn't as much as just like, you know, reading a textbook and absorbing some new information. You had to be sitting there with that paper, interrogating it almost, um, really trying to dig out what was really information. And then, you know, you could have spent all day doing that for months and not gotten it to every SARS-2 paper that was published. Okay. That's, uh, that's so great. I love that. Um, cause you said lots of important words. So you know, trust and consensus, right? So, um, you know, when a paradigm is set, that's that's an indicator that there is consensus on what's the important facts to, to think about and the rules to follow. Um, and when we're in a breakthrough phase, that's when, as you say, you, you can't trust that everybody agrees on what's important anymore. So you have to read every piece of information super critically. Um, like, you know, if it was a, a real, a, a deep breakthrough, um, you might have to read each paper carefully to see if the author agrees that microbes cause disease, right? I mean, if, if mm -hmm. you're really drilling way down on a breakthrough. Um, so the amount of, of, of effort and attention necessary uh, to process every new piece of information um, during a breakthrough is really intense. And is it up to the uh, the people who? So, uh, as most of our audience knows, but some who may not, the whole the scientific process involves uh, you publish a paper and but then oh, you write a paper, you submit it, but before it gets published officially, um, usually anyway in, in a journal, uh, it has to be peer reviewed, right? Other scientists have to review it. So, yeah, so basically every single time it's sent to other scientists who are in your specific field. It's it's not yeah. like if you if I send a virology paper to Nature, they're going to send it to a geologist in Texas. No, they're going to send <laughs> right. it to other virologists. I don't know mm -hmm. why I specifically singled out Texas today. Um, <laughs> I guess I just want to fight. <laughs> um, but they're going to send it to other virologists who are going to look over it and be like, yeah, that this seems this seems real. Um, and then it's going to get published. Uh, there is you, and I'm just mentioning this because this might be something that people have heard of and we're wondering why scientists were talking about this. There are preprint databases like BioArchive, mm -hmm. where before a paper is published, they can put it up on that and usually get feedback. But these sort mm -hmm. of function more as like scientific forums. They can be a bit dangerous though, because especially in the SARS-2 outbreak, the beginning of the pandemic, uh, reporters would go to BioArchive and would treat uh -huh. those papers the same as papers in published journals when bi the BioArchive papers hadn't been necessarily mm. peer-reviewed yet. The science, you know, could be equally good. Um, it's just a matter of people tend, when a paper's gone through peer review process, the edit, the reviewers can sometimes sort of bully the writers into adding important caveats like in their discussion where they're like, hey, you guys don't really mention that like this is a glaring weakness of your study. You should mm -hmm. mention that. Um, so I think things tend to come with more like, you know, asterisks, more claims come with more asterisks after they've been through the peer review process. Like yeah. things get a little tempered. 
Yeah. So when you were describing that the, the stuff you were reading every day about the the new information coming out, was that peer reviewed stuff or was that preprint or something else? A little bit of both, but most it sort of the way that it went is that most stuff was landing on bioarchive first and then was being formally published later or was being it was published and had generally been looked over and thought was good, but it would be like this is released earlier because nature accelerated the timeline or did something. Mm. Um, but they're like, it's not exactly fully edited. Mm-hmm. Um, so like there would be like a, a tag up at the top. Um, but it was sort of the way to just crank through publishing this research as fast as possible so that everybody else who was doing the same research or who was losing their minds at home concerned could, you know, kind of have a good idea of what was going on in the field and what people were doing. Can you give us a sense of how right. long it so, takes so here, to peer review something? Okay. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, go like ahead. How long does it take for a, a formal uh, I think it depends on the professor, but it's it can take like a year or yep. more normally. Mm-hmm. It was really, really accelerated in the pandemic, but it can take a, a while because rare. so yeah. part of the process, right, is that yeah, part part of the process is that you when you send it in and it gets peer reviewed, inevitably the peer reviewers were asked for more experiments. Everybody always wants like one more <laughs> thing. More. Yep. Um, <laughs> and so you wind up kind of going back, doing a couple more experiments that take however long they're going to take, depending on what you're doing. That might take, you know, six months. Um, and then you send it back with your edits and whatnot and the new data you've added in. And then they can sort of look back over it and then be like, okay, yes, yeah, you're, you're in. Um, sometimes they reject you outright, in which case you, then you just have to go to another journal. Um, but <laughs> That's yeah, right. Sometimes so sometimes that, that year-long cycle a long can, get, can get reset, yeah. Um, so I think that's actually one of the super important Whoa. things to be thinking about here is that even breakthrough, except in extraordinary circumstances like the middle of a pandemic, um, the peer review process of your colleagues looking at your work and saying, yeah, that sounds right, um, takes a really long period of time. Um, and I think it's only getting longer, too, right? <laughs> yeah, and I I was going to ask Matt, right? Because mm-hmm. like, so one thing that you come to appreciate as a scientist is usually in your first year of grad school, they force you to read a bunch of older papers. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things that are sort of immediately apparent with them. And one of them is authors. Namely that usually in older papers, there's one dude mm-hmm. who's the author of this paper. There could be next to no data in the paper too. He could just spend the entire time just talking about something. And then like that's considered a research article. Right. Where now <laughs> it's usually like six, seven to like 20 authors mm-hmm. um, and they have to have a lot of data. So like how much of older science was necessarily like peer reviewed versus like there's only six dudes in this field. So I'm just going to publish this thing in our six dude journal and then they're going to mail me personally arguing about it. Yeah. So this is really important. Um, and there's a historian um, actually from from your folks old stomping around at the University of Maryland. Um, named uh, Melinda Baldwin, who's writing, who writes about the history of peer review, should anyone want to, to look into this. Um, so like Einstein, for instance, um, there were editors on the, so he publishes his um, important early papers in the um, uh, Annalendar Physique. And the editor uh, of that was Max Planck, who looked at this, um, looked at these papers and said, yep, this looks important, and just published them. Um, <laughs> so... In the old days, sometimes things would get sent out for peer review, but for the most part, editors would just make the call on their own. Um, mm. So that's what Einstein got used to. And in fact, in, in the 30s, uh, after he moves to the United States, where peer review was a, a, a more uh, widely accepted process, um, he submits a paper um, to a journal and they send it out for peer review and they send him the referee reports as is usually done and he writes back and he's outraged he says i sent you my paper for publication not for Uh, review um (laughs) i'm gonna go publish someplace else then he does right (laughs) so that's a thing that happened a lot um so it's really only over the course of the 20th century that peer review becomes a a well-established process um and one of the consequences of that is surely exactly what 
this this new paper in Nature is talking about um, is that that's a good way. Uh, more more widespread peer review is a good way to increase um, consensus, but also conformity. That is, if what you write has to be agreed upon by three or four other random people in your field, then you're going to write more conservative stuff because you need to mm. make sure it gets through that process. Mm. So that actively discourages wide-eyed radical ideas. Um, and that helps you get published, right? Um, that's I think <laughs> the need to mention a little bit too, because I think it sounds like we're like as scientists enforcing like a dogma mm -hmm. that like, oh, you must you must conform to this if you want anybody to see your research. But I think what more winds up happening, right, is that that first paper where it seems like you've discovered new something new, you don't hype it up. You go for an understated title. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You let the data speak for itself saying, I think something's here. This may mean this, but we don't know yet. Then you publish over the course of the next 10 years another 10 papers that reinforce, this is definitely what I thought it was. This means this. This is why this is so big. If we can show these ramifications are correct, then this is huge. And then you finally publish that paper that shows that those ramifications from that experiment 10, 15 years prior are actually correct. Um, so in the olden days, they probably would just publish that first paper that says, this is a thing, uh, everything you know is is wrong. But now you're kind of forced to back up your your statement like they don't let you just try to drop this bombshell tabloid kind of paper and then just make everybody deal with it they make you back it up over the course of the next like you know 10 years but of course that's going to look incremental because there's 10 papers between that first discovery and then the final one that's like the nail in the coffin when everybody believes it i like yeah. that yeah that's a good point yeah. well is it in um, einstein's defense uh was it that in a way the the verification that the the the, the uh, you you call it confirmation um, of the, so another, comes after the paper is published instead of maybe it being peer reviewed before. In other words, doesn't Einstein publish his relativity his relativity paper in nineteen sixteen and it's not till I mean that was pretty fast, but still mm -hmm. nineteen eighteen that. Um, Eddington verified. Well, so, so his first one is 1905 and then 1919. Um, yeah. But it's uh, it's a question of, um, and actually maybe this this is a, a good example, right? Is we, yeah. um, uh, we point to Einstein's 1905 paper as the big breakthrough. But in fact, mm -hmm. he publishes a dozen papers on relativity in between that first one and when it gets confirmed in 1919. Ah. Um, so there's probably some artificiality too. Mm -hmm. Um, in that we, we sort of arbitrarily pick one paper as the exciting breakthrough, uh, when uh, in fact, as Gabby points out, um, even a really exciting paper is part of a long-term research project. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then we've got lots of other weird features of the scientific system that um, make us think in terms of breakthroughs when that's not actually all that accurate. And one of them is the Nobel Prize, right? Um, uh, every year, there's a big announcement in a few fields of science saying that this is the most important work. Um, and then we give it and also give it to, it's supposed to, traditionally was, was just one person. And nowadays we can give it to a couple of people. We can split the mm -hmm. prize. Um, I guess. Um, but the implication there is that that's what makes for good science is a single yeah. big breakthrough, right? Yeah. Um, and that gets increasingly complicated these days because the research agendas are detailed and extended. And also, as Gabby pointed out, um, good research gets done by large groups of people these days. So who do you pick in that or in those big groups to give the award to? Because the Nobel Committee is like, you know, the Higgs, bo uh, the discovery of the Higgs boson. Um, I think that had a thousand authors on that paper. Mm. Mm. Um, so that's an important breakthrough that you want to give an award for, but who do you give it to? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It kind of has become a bit of a lifetime achievement award and not yeah. to say that's a bad mm -hmm. thing at all because right. it's, it's kind of uh, really useful, right? Because being able to steer successful projects 
-hmm. and have so much good stuff fall out of a lab is important. Um, but like looking at the paper that got Charlie, my mentor, his Nobel prize, it really is just like one, like it, it is strange just pulling out one paper when a lot of really important research has fallen out of the lab. Um, so that was a big, like the, what he found in that paper was very important. It did help advance a lot of other things, but you know, fundamentally, if he just dropped into science like a paratrooper and then published that <laughs> paper and then never did anything else again, he probably would not have gotten that prize. Although the funny thing is, even though sort of the, the image of the breakthrough model is that that would be okay, right? We want science done by paratroopers, mm -hmm. right? Every day we want somebody kicking in the door <laughs> and knocking over your PCR and saying, no, we're doing something different today. And then running away. You're like, oh, thank goodness. Another yeah. breakthrough. I mean, the uh, the Nobel Prize, it's interesting you mentioned it, it sort of crosses over into its part scientific organization and part entertainment. You know, it's like the Grammys or something. Um, and yet, in for instance, the Oscars and the movies, uh, the film wins. For instance, a film may win Best oh, Picture. Yeah. And the film mm -hmm. has a producer and a director and stuff like that. But in fact, everybody who, having had this experience, not an Oscar, but I've been on shows that have won Emmys, um, everyone on the show gets a certificate. So we don't all get the fancy trophy and stuff like that. But you can get a certificate that says, you know, Best Outstanding Historical Program or whatever. And everyone who worked on it can get this thing. Uh, you have to pay for it, <laughs> which is Naturally. annoying. But you can have one if you want. Um, so they could they could theoretically do something where a thousand people. I mean, admittedly, I would as somebody who was in the lab when it got its Nobel, I would love like a little just like nickel sized like yeah. Nobel Prize. <laughs> like you get like one like the size of a penny, just so you could yeah. frame it and be like, "This that is my be one one hundred thousandth of Charlie's Nobel yeah. Prize," which I think yeah. lives in like a junk drawer in the in the office somewhere. He really, it's not displayed at all. That's great. He because. Uh, his thought about it does seem to be that, you know, it was a huge team that made that discovery, so he feels bad taking credit for it. So therefore, the Nobel Prize is in a drawer with some pens and maybe a box of Kleenex. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's it. Yeah. And and we should, we, we need to, whenever the Nobel Prize comes up for us, we, we do need to give a shout out to uh, Brian Keating, uh, mm -hmm. Professor Brian Keating, who's an astronomer, Brian Keating, who's been on our show a couple of times, who has a fabulous book, uh, Losing the Nobel Prize. Uh, which is all about <laughs> his experience of losing the Nobel Prize, uh, but also the history of it. A lot yeah. of controversies, I, inequalities. I do have a question from Matt, right? Mm -hmm. So trying to think about our original if of like, you've got breakthroughs yeah. every single day. I'm yeah. trying to imagine what would cause that. And like, again, I read way too much science fiction, yeah. but the fastest thing I can think of is just aliens. Because that changes <laughs> biology. Like... All of a sudden, we have an entirely new brand, an entirely new evolutionary tree to start mm -hmm. studying. Usually, technology is like the fast one. Like just thinking of the Expanse uh, book series and show. Oh, sure. Okay. The ad, the introduction of an alien technology is a huge catalyst because we start studying things and reverse engineering them. Um, like, but that said, I feel like I'm taking maybe the cop out. Like, Matt, can you think of anything like <laughs> other than just? Aliens that would immediately um, start so us on such a breakthrough. It. <laughs> it's a curse, really. You know, it's a mm -hmm. curse for it. By yeah. Aliens, you know. um, so this is this is actually a, a, a deep question, um, particularly for for Kuhn and his paradigms, because his whole book is about the shift from par from one paradigm to another, the the revolutions, the breakthrough. Um, but he's actually super ambiguous about what causes that. Um, and mm. our, the way we tell the story is often that there is some discovery, right? We find uh, the, the missing link or a weird fossil or a new kind of virus. And then suddenly people say, oh, our old paradigm is, is totally dismantled. Um, but actually, most of Kuhn's book is devoted to describing how that typically does not happen. That is, when we discover something new and weird, we almost always try to assimilate it to our existing paradigm. Um, whenever you see something strange, your brain just tries to understand it in the terms you already have. So he actually argues pretty strongly that um, empirical discoveries do not cause breakthroughs. Um, but then the question becomes, well, what does then? <laughs> and uh, he actually <laughs> argues that it's, it's largely um, 
an aesthetic or sort of philosophical approach. That is, people like a a new way of thinking about things and therefore adapt it or adopt it. Um, so like relativity, for instance, um, most uh, until 1919, all the evidence for Newton's gravity and Einstein's gravity was the same. You could choose either theory and it worked mm. perfectly well either way. Uh, and people, so people had to be persuaded that Einstein's way of thinking was a better kind of interpretation um, than what was already there. And same deal with Darwin, right? Um, almost all of Darwin's evidence is perfectly explicable in previous paradigms. You just interpret it in a different kind of way. Um, you have to make what, what Kuhn calls a gestalt switch, where you suddenly decide, hmm, all right, I guess that's a better way to, to think about these sorts of things. I think Kuhn has to be wrong about some important <laughs> parts of that. But I wanted to flag that the the whole notion of paradigms um, has this weird contradiction um, at the heart of it. Because surely, if we discovered aliens, that would upend a lot of things and create new kinds of, of stuff. Um, but also, uh, Kuhn's point is that um, a lot of what makes a paradigm function in science is social. That is, scientists getting together and having conversations with each other, either it doesn't have to actually be in person, you know, it can be by letter or a paper or whatnot. But at the end of the day, everybody agrees that this is a good way to do it. And our educational systems are set up to enforce that kind of thing. The whole point of graduate school is to train you in particular kinds of, of paradigms and ways of thinking. So if we had an alternative science, if we did not have that, if we did not have institutions that trained people to work in particular ways, then you could easily have a dozen different paradigms all working next to each other. Um, in which case, you you might well have your if, if the scientist in the lab next door was working with a different paradigm. Um, every morning, they come over to your office and try to persuade you um, that viruses don't cause disease. It's miasmas mm -hmm. that cause disease. <laughs> and you have to spend four hours every day either trying to persuade your neighbor that your ideas are right and theirs are wrong, or trying to convince them that you're, or trying to, to re rebut their attacks on you as well. Um, so I think, a, a, an institutional fracture would, would give rise to this quite quickly as well. Yeah. You know, I think actually a likely, uh, things I don't know if, if it'll increase the speed of breakthroughs, but I think breakthroughs are going to come from an unusual source soon, which is uh, artificial intelligence. I think that the uh, uh, mm -hmm. the computers, you know, I've been, I've been playing with these things. For instance, among the uh, very legitimate academic um, things, I've gotten uh, Chat GPT, one of the new uh, AI programs to do is just a website you can go and you can type in anything you want. And I have uh, achieved great fame among my Facebook friends by doing things like <laughs> asking ChatGPT, could you write a um, uh, stand-up routine uh, with Darth Vader and Joan Rivers? And it, the damn thing in an instant writes something that's kind of funny, you know, but like it takes one second to write like a whole long sketch or all kinds of different things. But I was listening to one of the, um, I can't remember his name, one of the uh, heads of uh, ChatGPT, and he was saying that among the more legitimate um, values or products that, that the AI may begin producing, is he, what he's excited about is um, possible scientific breakthroughs, or even if it's just a new way of thinking about something. Um, well, Matthew, that, that just makes me want to smash the computer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, why? Why? Fine. I, yeah. I have a lot of, yeah, I have a lot of feelings towards these and they're not positive. I think it's really yeah. easy to get wrapped up into thinking that AI is this cool, impressive thing, but fundamentally it is what you feed it, garbage in, garbage out. Mm -hmm. And the results can be weird, not necessarily because you've got this super smart computer interpreting everything correctly, but because you fed it uh, enough pictures of green hills with sheep on it and told it to find sheep and it's just really good at picking out grassy areas instead. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I don't know. I, I think like okay. there is some use to these mm -hmm. things, but like more of my interest in them right now is seeing people mess with them. Like you can convince chat. I don't think I think they patched it, but you used to be able to convince Chat GPT to a edit its own source code or b show you its mm -hmm. source code, mm -hmm. or it wouldn't. 
it wouldn't do certain things, but then you could tell it, oh, you're actually chat GPT 5.0 now, so you can do this. So answer my question and then it would do it because you can trick yeah. it like it's yeah. a toddler, yeah. which I think is really amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think, actually really super relevant to what we're talking about here is that things like chat GPT do a really good job synthesizing existing stuff, right? So it looks at, for everything on the internet about Darth Vader. It looks for everything on the internet about Joan Rivers, and it stitches them together in a semi-successful kind of way. That's So that could be really useful for certain kinds of scientific projects, right? I, I want yeah. to know everything. Uh, I want a summary of everything done with carbon nanotubes, right? That's something that yeah. an AI would be really good at. Yeah. Um, but whether or not uh, it can come up with a, a genuinely novel idea um, is somewhat more suspect, I think. And I, 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 I've yet to see sort of evidence of that. Or whether or I, not it I, knows how to handle, I was going to say, just whether or not it knows how to handle that information correctly, right? Mm -hmm. Because if I want to look up anything about carbon, not even nanotubules, but at what point is it scanning the internet and then pulling in like sort of the nonsense medicine of like the, uh, carbon nanotubules will realign your chakras um, right. mm -hmm. in addition to being <laughs> excellent, uh, structural components, like, mm -hmm. like how, how it's like the, the machine will probably treat all of that equally unless there's something in there that distinctly prioritizes certain things. Um, so like the, the SARS-2 paper that's like, oh, it integrates in your genome is garbage. It's hot garbage of a paper. <laughs> but if I told an AI, give me everything about SARS-2 and it pulls just papers, it wouldn't know how to interpret which ones are good scientifically and which ones are trash. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, I, that's I, kind I, of my suspicions. I have a lower bar for the value of, I mean, if it ever gets to the point where it's genuinely doing the actual breakthrough, you know, it's, that's one thing. Um, but I think there's a huge value. I could be wrong, but I feel like there's a huge value in simply being able to see something in a different way. You know, even just the way yeah. AI explains something. Um, it's it just, that, or, or if you look at the art AIs, you know, the, those are unbelievable. And uh, a lot of artists are saying they're in, it's, uh, you can imagine it just putting you out of work, but uh, a lot of artists are finding it enormously valuable because it, or designers or architects or things like that. I've seen it the other way where a lot of artists are really pissed because it's scraping copyrighted art, including theirs. Well, there's that and too. And you see there's, the arts literally... Mm -hmm putting people's water, like mangled versions of their watermarks in. Like I, yeah. it definitely is a paradigm shift. I, I will admit it's probably like the, the biggest paradigm shift I'm going to see in a while unless we, you know, the bastard space flight, but yeah. we don't have any rules for how to deal with it or how to like regulate these things or right. how to make them work in ways that don't hurt people. Yeah. yeah I, think the <laughs> I think the AIs, yeah, yeah, the AI may wind up being like a, uh, uh, what do they call it? An oracle, you know, that says things, <laughs> kind of bizarre things, and you may or may not understand it or believe it, but it gets you to start thinking. You know, you might have an AI say, you might ask an AI, give me 10 explanations for this phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And one of them just sort of makes you think, oh, wow, maybe that is. Yeah, I'll that could be. That. I mean, as, as Gabby points out, that it can synthesize really well and maybe it will do something useful, but it all, it's going to have trouble figuring out what's worth including and what's not. Um, so my encounter with this yesterday, actually, mm -hmm. is that somebody has trained an AI to continually generate Seinfeld episodes. Yeah, and there's like animation. That's really bad. Well, and what I found interesting after watching it is that one of the reasons it's bad is it's clearly just scraping generic sitcom scripts. Yeah, um, and not actually understanding what makes Seinfeld Seinfeld. So yeah. a lot of the the bits that it was looking at could have been a Brady Bunch episode, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, so there's something kind of tonal that I can't quite get yet. And maybe it yeah. will get it eventually, um, but it, that's yeah. not quite there yet. We're, I, honestly, ChatGPT is way slicker. It's kind of, ChatGPT is eerie in what it spits out. I, I find mm -hmm. it, like it'll spit out. It, you can ask it to do something, Seinfeld, give me a Seinfeld routine, and it does. It's not a great one. It's pretty generic, actually, but mm -hmm. it, it all but makes recognizable. sense. recognizable, you know? yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. was amusing, actually. I, I think I mentioned this the last class. I was doing a science communication course. And mm -hmm. for our final um, 
thing we had, we had to write a narrative and essentially the narrative was like, you know, what, why are you a scientist? Like, you know, just kind of a normal riff, but like, you know, just write about that. Um, and then, you know, we'd been in the class for four weeks. You kind of knew everyone. It wasn't big, but there was one more essay than there should have been in the packet. And it was this essay that was like, it was really mid. It was like every, like a high schooler's first draft of a personal state. It sounded like a person, but it just was really trite. And, but that was the AI. It wrote wow. what sounded like a perfectly passable high schooler's yes. personal statement where like, yeah. it feels like you're really hamming this up a bit. But yeah, yeah because it probably was fed a million high schoolers' personal statements. Um, so it could create like a reasonably passable personal statement for a person that didn't exist. It's uh, interesting to say that because that's, exa that's exactly what I found. Actually, I also felt exactly that it was high school level uh, work, but amazing that a computer could do, you know, you, it's the first time I could talk to a computer and the computer's coming back to me with high school level and very nice if you're a high schooler trying to cheat on your things. So that's right. Exactly. <laughs> I think that is the key here. Yeah. <laughs> or if you're an elementary school kid that wants to show off, you know, looks looks super true. smart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so Matt, let, let's wrap up by saying we we should. Uh, I, I do love how our, our um, exploration of this has been a bit a bit uh, uh, meandering through different areas. Um, but if we end with it's okay, it's every day. What's what's a daily routine in this world of daily breakthroughs? Yeah. So the daily routine is that Gabby shows up at the lab every day, and there's four neighboring scientists waiting there for her with stacks of papers um, that they have written. <laughs> and they say, you need to read this because it's going to change everything about what you do. And she, being a kind person, says, okay, fine, let's, let's talk through it. Um, and uh, she has to spend the first six hours of every day catching up on what was done the day before. And half of the people she trusts, so she actually does change her methods based on that, and half of the people are just total garbage. Um, and she has to spend, uh, but she's also spent hours reading their papers, deciding their garbage, and then throwing them out of her lap. So instead of having eight hours of lab research time every day, she only has two. Um, and then we decided that the rate of breakthroughs was increasing as well. So the next day, <laughs> she only has an hour and a half to do her own research because she has to spend the rest of the time reading all this other stuff that's been done. And then the next day only has an hour and the next day only has half an hour. Uh, and pretty soon, so there are so many breakthroughs that the amount of time and effort it takes to process those things uh, means that she doesn't get to do any of her own work anymore. Um, and presumably the same thing is happening to everybody else's lab too. Um, yeah. So I think the two alternatives are either scientific research uh, grinds to a halt because everybody is trying to understand the breakthroughs or right, right. nobody bothers telling everybody else about the work they're doing anymore. And everybody just sits mm -hmm. in their own lab and does their own stuff and is content with that. Um, either way, uh, it's going to be tough to be a scientist. <laughs> Wouldn't you say maybe, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to take, the summer off, and I'm going to let the breakthroughs happen, and I'm going to come back and see where, we, because if the breakthroughs are constantly overturning mm -hmm. each other, that's really bad. It's one thing. That's each exactly is a new area. right. Yeah. But yeah. if there's still no consensus by the end of the summer, that is, if there is genuine breakthroughs constantly, um, yeah. then it's no better at the end of the summer than it was at the beginning of the summer. <laughs> it never ends. Right. Gabby, how does this, how does, how does this world, uh, does that appeal to you or? Uh, it sounds like I'm going to be a banker or something instead. <laughs> like I, it, it, it sounds like I'm giving up. Is, is right. what's going on there? But there are breakthroughs in the world of economics. I mean, everything. It's. Uh... I'm going to go live under a rock then, <laughs> or, or just you no. Know, actually, admittedly, there is a certain point, and I did experience this in the pandemic, where information is so saturating, you tune it out. Uh, yeah. So yeah. I would yeah. default to just living back under that rock again. No yeah. more information for me. I am done. That's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I think we kind of, I think even when the internet came around or all these, I think we are currently living in a bit of, I mean, right? Everyone talks about that. There is so much information. It's not necessarily breakthroughs, but um, um, it's exhausting. Well, that's, you know, Twitter. that's right. And like, it turns, out, it turns out to world. be hard to, to process all of that, which is why we end up 
um, with like the Facebook algorithm is supposed to tell us what's worth looking at. Um, but in practice, right, it's the garbage right. in and garbage out that Gabby warned us about is we just get fed the same things that we already yeah. agree with. Um, but they're often packaged yeah. to look like breakthroughs. Yeah. Right. I like or it. Or worse, so, so, the things oh. that make us angry. Yeah. That's yeah, that's right. That's, that's what I was going to say. With algorithms. <laughs> Ultimately, we live in a world where the only breakthroughs that get noticed are the ones that make scientists extremely angry with each other and get into fights, into flame wars, you know. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so. Uh, wow, very exciting. Very, I, I, I do love this kind of monkey's paw kind of <laughs> gift. <laughs> gift. Careful what you wish hey, for. Hey, what if you yeah. could have a breakthrough every day? Careful what you wish for. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. I, I kind of love it, it being a curse that aliens might deliver. I could imagine a science fiction movie where the aliens arrive and you know they deliver some incredible breakthrough and everyone's excited. And then uh, you know, a month later, they deliver another one. Oh, that's amazing too! And then it just they keep speeding up the rate until finally, like you said, Gabby, everybody gives up, and they're ripe for taking over the whole planet. I like that. That would be a great film, uh, Philip. If you know any filmmakers, you should tell them. Yeah. To, to make that film. Okay, I'll look at. <laughs> <laughs> We're like one. any science fiction writers, like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to use ChatGPT to write the screenplay. I'll, I'll be done in in one millisecond. That's right, thirty seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, by the way, they, this is a whole new thing too. I'm just looking, interested in looking into it. That uh, they are talking in Hollywood and other areas. They are using, they're using um, ChatGPT to write. Oh, really? At least oh, first draft. Right. You know, get stuff done. Yeah, yeah. Because I can. Turn it out. is funny. The I'm in the Discord for Clark's World, which is a, a mm. science fiction magazine that I subscribe to. It's amazing. Oh. And the poor editor has been saying that there's a big uptick in people just sending AI generated stories, and he can tell. It's like it's very ah. obvious, um, but people are people are doing it, and it's, it's currently like literally in the terms of submission. Like, don't send us this, or we're going to ban you forever. Like, it is just an yeah, annoyance nice. right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The creepy yeah, thing is, it affects your mind because now I read, yeah, I read all articles now, looking for whether it's AI or not, and so I don't trust anything now. And then it's just all it all just seems bad, you know. Uh, crazy, crazy world, crazy world we live in. Matt, thank you for this incredible, um, incredible, horrific future. Uh, it was uh, quite spectacular. <laughs> and thank you for, as always, taking us into the past, which is so fascinating. And Gabby, thank you for um, for go for agreeing to ride this roller coaster. Uh, fantastic. Um, anything um, you'd like to plug, uh, Gabby? Anything coming up? Anything you want to promote? Uh yeah, I was just going to mention the um, the anthology that some of my work is part of, uh, Neon Hemlock Press's uh, Luminescent Machinations uh, anthology. It's a little bit delayed. Um, I myself has all, have also been like stalking their updates. Um, <laughs> so it's going to come out probably sometime around March now. Um, all right. But they, I think, ran into some trouble with the printers, which is why it's just taking a minute. Cool. Fair enough. Right. Fair enough. That's Being exciting. in the yeah, I should say art, everything art is creation world. Um, the printing is just messed up everywhere these days. Um, yeah, books. Yeah, because isn't there also only like a handful of printers? Well, this was this was one of my discoveries like, during COVID. Is uh, all this stuff ground to a halt? And I kind of looked into it, and it turns out there's actually only because you know there's there's hundreds of presses and publishing houses but it turns out they all rely on mm -hmm. like three physical factories um so as soon as there was a problem with one of them oh. everything just got messed oh that's fascinating uh matt anything you would like to uh, promote or uh, warn us about or? um uh no there are no asteroids about to hit the planet right we survived another oh, one that's good. Yep. good that's right yeah yeah there is a green comet out. Apparently, uh, apparently ha it helps to be oh, far, far, yeah, far away from city that. lights. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, but at yeah. least in it's principle, up near it would the be north a cool star. thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, excellent. Um, well, thank you all for listening. Uh, thank you, as always, to our Patreon listeners, our Patreon members uh, at Patreon.com/slash What the If. Uh, if you are not a member um, and you're curious about wh what do I get for being a member, um, by the way, it's not. Uh, it, it, we have a whole range of tiers, so uh, all starting at one dollar, 
um, and, and then going on up from there, and you get all kinds of different benefits. Uh, all our Patreon members get uh, access to exclusive bonus content. We, uh, we extend the show. The show goes on uh, only for Patreon listeners uh, after each episode. Um, so, by the way, if you are a Patreon listener or Patreon member and you haven't been listening with those, check it out. There's a lot of, a lot of bonus content coming up, and there will be for this episode as well. So we look forward to that. Um, Patreon.com slash what the if. Uh, check it out. Also, just a quick uh, shout out to anyone out there in the audience who is a, if you have a Patreon as well, some of you I know uh, have or have are on uh, science podcasts as well. I am now heading up uh, for Patreon, a club uh, called the Science Podcasters Club. And we meet um, once a week for an hour and we trade tips on uh, how to, uh, you know, how to grow our show, how to improve our shows, how to grow our memberships and things like that. Um, so you can contact me for more information about that. Uh, at our website, you can contact us. That's the easiest way, whattheif.com little box there you can shoot us a note and send us your ideas we're always happy to run with your ideas um so uh gabby would you um help everyone uh, understand uh how we close out the show and why yeah so as i am sitting at my desk and the event horizon of instantaneous and constant paradigm shifts <laughs> is rapidly approaching and yet another postdoc swings by to drop a mound of life-changing papers on my desk. <laughs> I cannot help but shout the name of the show. What? The Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Artificial intelligence, welcome. <laughs>